<clears throat> Welcome back to these uh, evening readings. And we're in the Kayanupasana, um, uh, the um, mindfulness of the body, contemplation of the body section of the Satipatthana Sutta. And um, the, uh, the last part that uh, we were uh, looking at was about um, uh, posture and the, um, uh, the aspect of uh, the body in terms of, uh, of movement and such like, activities. And so the next one is uh, section six, the anatomical parts and the elements. The next two exercises listed in the Satipatthana Sutta, contemplating the anatomical constitution of the body and contemplating the body in terms of the four elements, both direct mindfulness to an analysis of the body's constitution. The first of these two analytical meditations surveys the constitution of one's body by listing various anatomical parts, organs, and fluids. The passage reads, He reviews this same body up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the hair, enclosed by skin as full of many kinds of impurity. Thus, in this body there are head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, bowel, mesentery, contents of the stomach, feces, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spittle, snot, oil of the joints, and <coughs> urine. In other discourses, this list of, anatom of anatomical parts is followed by the expression, quote, and whatever other parts there may be, unquote. This indicates that the Satipatthana list is not exhaustive, and the items mentioned are examples of the kinds of bodily parts that can be contemplated. In fact, other passages mention several bodily parts or fluids missing from this list, such as the brain, uh, the sexual organs, or earwax, which demonstrates that the Satipatthana list does not exhaust the ancient Indian knowledge of human anatomy. And one thing that he, uh, he notes is that there's, uh, uh, there's 31 different parts mentioned in this, this list. The, the version that we do in our, our chanting books has got 32, um, because the, the, the uh, last one is brain, which in, interestingly enough comes under the fluid category. So, uh, and uh, in, in, according to the um, uh, biological understanding of the Buddha's time, or at least after the Buddha, if you look in the Visuddhimagga, the main function of the brain was considered to be the production of snot. Some of you might feel that's medically accurate, but uh, uh, the brain doesn't even get onto this list. But one interesting um, point that, that he notes is that um, the fact that in the Satipatthana Sutta the anatomical parts listed are 31 could have some additional significance, since in Buddhist cosmology, the realms of existence are also of the same number. So that the, uh, uh, the realms uh, of uh, uh, different planes of existence, like the human realm, the 
the animal realm, the hungry ghost realm, the deva realms, uh, the hell realms, and so forth. There are 31 altogether uh, in the, that list. Most of them are the Brahma worlds, the, the higher deva worlds. But um, the, uh, the, according to the traditional cosmology, then there's, there's a, a, the complete list numbers 31 different realms. And uh, so as he, he makes uh, the note, thus the descriptions of material existence on the microcosmic and the macrocosmic level were molded on a similar pattern. So um, 31 is not such a common number, but it seems there might be some, some kind of significance. Probably somebody's written a PhD about it somewhere. Um, because uh, you know, any kind of common sense tells us that there are more parts of the body that you could list um, that are you know, pretty uh, uh, it's clear and, and obvious that one could uh, one could name, but are uh, are left out. Um, and so that perhaps it is the case that the, they were aiming for a list of, of thirty-one to be the, the standard reference, but that's a, a subject of speculation. The set of anatomical parts given in the Satipatthana Sutta follows a natural sequence from the solid and outer parts through its internal organs to the organic liquids. So the, out, the, um, the first five are hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin. So those are the external features of the, um, uh, of the human body. That's what it starts with, and then it goes to the, the solid uh, um, items inside, like uh, uh, skin, uh, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, and so on. And then the fluids like uh, bile, phlegm, blood, and sweat, and so on. This sequence represents a progressive penetration of awareness. The parts most easily accessible to awareness are mentioned first, while the aspects of the body listed further on in the sequence require a deeper degree of awareness and sensitivity. Alternatively, the sequence can also be taken to correspond to an exercise in imaginative visualization, during which one strips one's body of each part in turn. And uh, so it's often come up in, uh, say, uh, teaching about this, this uh, sort of reflective exercise, you know, contemplation of the, the, um, the parts of the body, that uh, sometimes someone says, I can't really feel my liver. Or I can't my, my my kidneys. I can't really get a sense of what they feel like. Well, there's um, uh, it's not a surprise because in many of the, um, the 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 body's internal organs don't have much in the way of of sensory receptors and you know, feeling receptors involved in them, and uh, so uh, it's uh, it's as much uh, an imaginative exercise or to recollect. Oh yeah. There is a heart that's beating all the time here. There is this this body is seventy percent water. Oh yeah, this this body does have these uh, uh, these solid structures like a, a liver or bone marrow or the uh, the lymph system. Oh yeah, there is there is that uh, doing its thing. So it's not so much you know I really need to get in touch with my lymph and to to figure out what that feels like because that if you can well. Well done, <laughs> but those things are generally pretty in for most ordinary human beings. Those things are pretty intangible. The external aspects of the the body are very tangible. Obviously, you know, you, they're built to have uh, lots of sensory receptors to 
uh, say, detect what's going on in terms of the relationship of the body and the, the world around it. So the majority of the, the skin and the surface of the body has uh, a very, very high degree of sensitivity. But the, interior, uh, the internal aspects of the body, and particularly the fluid aspects, that like you can't really, your blood has no sense receptors. In it. You can't feel your blood. And, um, and so it's uh, uh, more of an imaginative exercise. That's how I've always understood it and, and worked with it. So it's from, oh yes, that's right, this, this body is filled with blood. I shouldn't be surprised to, to, to uh, recollect that. Or, oh yes, the, the body needs to breathe all the time. That's right, we need to be uh, taking in and, and uh, letting out gases all the time. That's, that's the, the way the body works. The uh, the mention of a, a also a visualization during which one strips one's body of each part in turn. This is a, a practice that uh, Ajahn Chah talked about uh, doing uh, for many many years as a standard part of his sitting meditation. That he would begin each period of sitting by peeling his skin off imaginatively, <laughs> sort of laying it down in front of him um, like a kind of mat or a carpet, and then taking his organs out bit by bit, so his, his heart and then his lungs and his liver and his guts and sort of piling them up on this mat of his, of his skin in front of him. And just do that as a kind of imaginative exercise to help uh, get a perspective on the body and the identification with the body, the sense of the body is me, it's mine, it's who and what I am, I am this person. And the, these, uh, uh, these bones, these lungs, this stomach, these, this heart, these... Uh, the, uh, this face, these teeth, these are, are me and, and mine. And uh, throughout this, the, um, this whole section here, both on the reflections on the parts of the body and the, the four elements in particular, it's very, very directly pointed to breaking up the, um, the habit of what's called Sakaya Ditti, and, uh, which is usually translated as self-view or personality view. So that is the the presumption. I am the body. This is this is what I am. I am a man, or I am fifty nine years old, or I am um, uh, Ajahn Amaro. That uh, that sort of uh, uh, presumption that that's an absolute fact uh, is called sakayaditi, self view. Also, that uh, in terms of our personality or our life story. Uh, that's all part of Sakaya Ditti. But right there in the word, Sakaya Ditti is uh, it, it's sort of highlighting how the body is a, a key element of approaching that because the very word itself, uh, Sa means true or real, Kaya means body, right? Kayanupasana, the contemplation of the body, Ditti means view. So Sakaya Ditti literally means the view of the real body. Right? This body is me, it is what I am. Right? You can say, that's a glass of water, right? So when I take a sip, some of what was a glass of water is now me. This shouldn't be news, right? It's not strange or weird, but we say, no, that's a glass of water, that's Ajahn Amaro, but then suddenly water becomes me, because we do this all the time. And we're breathing all the time, inhaling, exhaling the uh, oxygen, carbon dioxide, nitrogen. You know, <clears throat> uh, was it 70, 80% of the air that we breathe is nitrogen? So it comes in, goes out, doesn't do anything in terms of relating to our, our body. 
But uh, we, are, we are exchanging our, what we call our body or ourselves with the atmosphere around us and the, the world around us all the time. It never stops. We're breathing in particles of each other's bodies. It might be a bit grungy to think about that. But um, we all shed skin cells all the time. That's what dust, any of you helping to clear up the sweep the sala, vacuuming. What you're vacuuming up and, and wiping off the surfaces of the shrine, that's all people. It's like... We're not we're not eating we're not deliberately eating people, <laughs> but we're, that's what the dust is. I, I shed a lot of, of skin myself. So the, the people who venerable Ruchira is my attendant at the moment. So all the dust he has to sweep up in my kuti is bits of me. They don't have Ajahn Amro written all the way through them, but the DNA does. So and then even though it's a bit yucky to think about it, we're breathing in that dust all the time, right? So even though the staunch vegetarians amongst us. <laughs> are taking in uh, human part yeah, human particles all the time. That's just uh, how we are. So, with these reflections on the the parts of the body, it's designed to directly approach that 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 the sa the truth of uh, of the the real body. It's a, well, it's a it's a relative truth or it's a conventional truth. It's it's not who and what we are, you know. How many of us relate to the fingernails that we cut off ten years ago? Where are they now? <laughs> how many times you've been to, you know, how many times have I shaved my head in the last thirty-eight years? You know, all those bristles. Do I feel an attachment to all those bristles sitting in bits of Thailand and, and England and the USA and everywhere else I've been? There's bits of me all over the over the planet, probably for for all of us. But we don't have a personal relationship with those nail clippings or, or bits of hair that go into the into the bin or at the the uh, the hairdressers or the barber shop or into the uh, the woods around your kuti. <laughs> They're gone. It's like, well, that's not me anymore. That's just hair clippings. If you happen to be a famous arahant, then people will collect your nail clippings, and you know, they they are kind of <clears throat> if uh, if you've got some of uh, Ajahn Chah's hair. <gasps> wow. Yeah, then it's um, a sacred relic, which I, I don't belittle. I do have some. <laughs> so uh, that, but the the point being is that uh, when the mind attaches to this as being who and what we are, right in that very attachment, taking that to be an absolute truth, then that is the cause of uh, of dukkha, the cause of a sense of, of separation, alienation, insecurity, and that these reflections. Are helping to shift that the perspective on on life and experience from being self-centered to to dhamma-centered to to seeing that our our body our who and what we are is all part of a natural order. It's not separate. It's not independent. It's not I and me and mine. So that's the the core of what these reflections are about. You also, you can try out that, that as a <clears throat> as a kind of uh, visualization for yourself uh, to begin each meditation by peeling your skin off, laying it on the floor in front of you, and sort of picking out your organs and piling them up, just to uh, <clears throat> to remember. Oh yeah, there's a liver in here. I carry one around with me wherever I go, and two kidneys, <laughs> and yards and yards of, of guts and blood vessels. Oh yeah, there's that too, and just to to, uh, to see when you when you have it in a heap sitting in front of you, at least in, just in your imagination, it's less 
sort of charming. Or when you look in the mirror and you think, oh dear, you know, I don't look very good today. You look a lot better than, you, than a pile of guts and bits of sinew and nerve uh, and nerves and uh, shredded hair and such like. The Visuddhi Magga indicates that the practice of this exercise progresses from giving attention to each individual anatomical part to becoming aware of them altogether. Sorry, becoming aware of all of them together. This suggests that with the more advanced stages of this contemplation, the individual parts recede in importance and awareness turns to the composite and unattractive nature of the body in its entirety. According to the Sampasadhanya uh, Sutta, uh, which is in the Diganikaya, I believe, <coughs> contemplation can also proceed from the anatomical parts to awareness of the skeleton only. And that's quite common in uh, in monasteries. We have a, at least a plastic one um, in the back of the temple. We have a, a real skeleton here in the monk's reception room. But uh, in, uh, in forest monasteries in particular, in Thailand, they often have a skeleton hanging up in the meditation hall. And as Ajahn Chah would, uh, would often say to people, if they were anxious or a bit put off by the skeleton, they wanted to sit away from it. He'd say, why are you afraid of the skeleton? You, you carry one around with you all the time, wherever you go. You take one to bed with you every night. <laughs> so, you know, the skeleton shouldn't be, a, shouldn't be a frightening thing, since we, if we didn't have one, we'd be in real trouble. A progressive pattern similar to the Satipatthana instructions can be found in the Vijaya Sutta of the Sutta Nipata, where a thorough investigation of the body leads from its outer anatomical parts to its inner organs and liquids. In the Vijaya Sutta, this investigation of the body concludes with the rhetorical question, how else, except through lack of insight, could one exalt oneself or disparage another because of such a body? So, uh, in reflecting on the on the, the body and what, how it's made up, and and uh, the uh, the fact that it's all these different parts put together, and uh, considering that uh, you know the dependent and uh, the uh, also the unattractive aspects of, of the body's constituents, then say okay, considering that, how how weird it is that we would judge each other saying you know i'm uh, i'm attractive or i'm not attractive that person's attractive that was that was more attractive than the other one how how weird to think in that way given the fact that the the body is made up of all these different uh, unappealing items so that's a rhetorical question is a, a question that doesn't need an answer how else except through lack of insight could one exalt oneself or disparage another because of such a body. Of course, that's a simple that's a simple sentence, but it goes counter to uh, hundreds of uh, millions, billions, and billions of pounds worth of expenditure uh, around the world uh, to to make uh, one's body as appealing as possible, and to uh, to feed into that the whole process of, of judging uh, one person against another in terms of the configuration of the body. This conclusion shows that the aim of the contemplation described is to reduce one's attachment to the body, a suggestion that holds true also for the Satipatthana Sutta. 
The Chinese Ekotara Agama lists a related contemplation as part of its version of body contemplation. This exercise is concerned with the bodily orifices, directing awareness to the repulsive nature of the excretions from each of them. The same exercise occurs in other discourses in the Pali Nikayas. The main purpose of this exercise and of contemplating the anatomical parts is to drive home the realization that one's own body and the bodies of others are not inherently attractive. A related nuance can be found in another discourse which refers to contemplating the anatomical constitution of the body with the heading, as below, so above, as above, so below. This suggests that a, de a detached observation of the various parts of the body leads to the understanding that they are all of an equal nature. Once one clearly apprehends their true nature, it becomes evident that there is nothing inherently beautiful in any particular aspect of the body, such as, for example, eyes, hair and lips. And in the Teri Gata, a nun vividly, which is the verses of the enlightened nuns, a nun vividly illustrates this insight by pointing out that if one were to turn the body inside out, even one's own mother would be disgusted and unbear, unable to bear the smell of it. Uh, it's also this uh, that uh, um, expression as above, as below, so above, as above, so below. In the uh, Asian perception of things, uh, in India and uh, also in Thailand, uh, the different parts of the body have a very different sort of spiritual loading. So the head is considered very sacred, and the feet are considered very coarse or very low. And so um, Brahmins would be considered sort of born from Brahma's head, and uh, and then the uh, the the, um, the workers or the lowest caste people were, were called. I believe the the term is the the uh, uh, the um, off scourings from Brahma's feet. So like the kind of dead skin rubbed off Brahma's feet it forms the sudras and the, the lowest castes. Uh, but this is saying that well, it, it, uh, there isn't really any not just in terms of attractiveness, but also that kind of spiritual loading of. The head is really special and important, but the feet are really kind of coarse. And it's also why we have the custom of, of uh, not pointing your feet towards a shrine. In, in Thailand, that's a, 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 an extreme no-no. That's like a very um, sort of socially um, disgusting and sort of disgraceful thing to do, to point your feet at a shrine. It'd be like walking up to somebody and spitting in their face. It'd be like, why would you do that? You know, What a horrible thing to do. Or taking a... Uh, an empty flower vase of, you know, vase of, of, of uh, flowers and sort of dumping them over the Buddha image, like, well, that's pretty you know, coarse or uh, uh, kind of uh, di horrible, disgusting thing to do. So in Thailand, pointing your feet towards a shrine or pointing your feet towards someone who's uh, sort of senior to you or uh, elder than you is considered like a, a, a great um, faux pas. But this is pointing out, well, feet, head, it's really all just... It's just the, the same stuff. So it's it's sort of leveling that the perception is not just in terms of, of attraction, but in those other aspects uh, as well. And uh, I think uh, <coughs> it was on Ajahn Chah's death anniversary, I, I gave a couple of readings from some of his teachings, and uh, uh, one particular talk where he's, uh, he's speaking about convention and saying how when he came to the West, he was surprised how uh, Westerners would sometimes casually just sort of touch somebody else on the head, and seeing people you know, do that uh, was 
was kind of startling to him. But then he reflected, well, yeah, in Thailand you'd never do that. You wouldn't sort of just touch a stranger on the head or, or relate to somebody else that way. But uh, really, what's the difference between a, someone's head and a cabbage? You know, touching a head and touching a cabbage, it's really just the same thing. And uh, he, so he's saying that in, in a Dhamma talk when he got back from uh, traveling in, in the West and giving that as a talk to the community in, in Thailand. And you can almost feel the sort of lurch <laughs> in the community. Like, how can you say that a cabbage is the same as a head? You know, someone's head, it's like... You can't, you can't say that. That, that. That's not right. You know, it's like <clears throat> saying a, you know, a chamber pot is the same as a, is the same as a teapot. You know, make tea in a chamber pot or make tea in a teapot, same thing. It's like you can, or maybe for the English, making tea in a kettle. Like, <gasps> but you can't. That's the kettle. You can't make the tea in that. You make the tea in the pot. Having lived in America for a long time, sometimes people have made tea in the kettle. <laughs> The English is a even more dis- disgraceful no-no. Like, possibly think of that. So it's a, it's just saying, well, this is just you know, organic matter. It comes together. We call it a body. You don't know, need to make anything special out of that. It happens to be a head or the feet or, or, or any aspect of it. So any particular questions or clarifications so far? Okay. Following the instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta to contemplate the unattractive nature of the body refers in the first instance to one's own body. Realizing the absence of beauty in one's own body thereby serves in particular as a countermeasure to conceit. So thinking of being proud of, of um, what you look like or really pleased with your appearance, saying, oh, you know, my cheekbones are very good. You know, Rajan Chah used to be very attached to his teeth. And he was he, he really loved, he spent hours as a kid polishing his teeth and making sure his teeth were as shiny and, and white, sort of admiring and delighting in his, his bright white teeth. And then, uh, so he, his teeth come up quite often in Dhamma talks because eventually he had uh, such trouble with, with toothache and, and, and rot that he had uh, he lost a lot of them, but then he had, I think, 18 taken out all at once. His last 18 teeth were, were, were taken out all at once. And he said, and five of them were still good. <laughs> so his teeth, and his teeth dukkha comes up quite often. And, but how he'd often talk about when he was when he was young, he was really proud and, and delighted with his teeth. And so, to um, uh, when it's um, talking about conceit. It can be, you know, particularly proud of something, but also in the Buddhist um, uh, use of the word conceit, it can also be uh, a negative thing. So, like to think that you're really awful, you've got the worst teeth imaginable, is still a, would still be a conceit in in Buddhist psychology. So, uh, it's um, again, it's a process of leveling. Like if if you don't like the way you look, or you think you're too too thin, or too fat, or too old, or too uh, too tall or too short or whatever, that it's a it's a way of of balancing out uh, negative perceptions as well as as uh, positive ones, uh, inflated ones. Subsequently, as indicated in the Satipatthana refrain, the same contemplation is then applied externally to the bodies of others. 
such an external application can become a powerful antidote to sensual desire. The potential of this contemplation as a countermeasure to sensuality has led to its inclusion in Buddhist ordination ceremonies, part of which consists in instruction, uh, instructing a novice monk or nun to contemplate the first five anatomical parts listed in the Satipatthana instruction. So in the, the Pabhaja, the, the, the um, ceremony for taking on the novice ordination, both for women and for men, then there's this um, uh, exchange that goes on between the preceptor and the, the candidate, and uh, it's like the primary meditation object. It isn't, it isn't to um, uh, focus on mindful, uh, the, the breath in a mindful way, it, uh, but rather, uh, or, or to develop insight even, but rather it's a con uh, contemplation of the, the body, to say so the going forth from the household life to the homeless life. Um, so your, your main toolkit is the reflection on the external features of the body, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin, um, which is an interesting reflection in its own right. Though. Right there in the gesture of going forth, taking on the uh, monastic uh, method of, of spiritual training, that's the, the 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 only kind of meditation advice that's given in the in the ceremony, and uh, and that's what it is. And so sometimes, particularly for Westerners, it's like, well, why are you repeating these body parts? Like, I'm not attached to my hair, you know. Um, but uh, it's quite uh, it's one of those those uh, deceptively potent forms of, of practice that you can think, well, this is a sort of insignificant bit of the ceremony, or I guess it's just. You, you repeat the words because you're supposed to, but what's that got to do with anything important? You know, that's not about liberation or nibbana. That's not about um, uh, about the the end of suffering, but uh, it is extremely um, uh, say effective you know, over time. Seeing how many uh, and various the ways that we create suffering uh, out of attachment to our body, identification with our body, uh, whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable whether it's um, uh, healthy or sick, uh, what it looks like, uh, what other people's bodies look like, and that uh, over time, just that simple reflection, kesalomanaka dantatacho, hair, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, it uh, is um, extraordinary how you know, 10 years later, 20 years later, 30, 40 years later, oh, look at that, still relevant. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah, and that it's like, Handed to you as your uh, your sort of um, principal toolkit. It's like your sort of Swiss Army knife for the spiritual training as you you come into the this um, method of of, of practice and living uh, to just use that as a, a primary tool to to break through the um, the conceit of of self view. Despite these benefits, the exercise, that is, um, reflecting on the unattractive nature of the body, the exercise has possible dangers. Excessive contemplation of, quote, impurity, unquote, can lead to loathing and repugnance. Loathing one's own body or that of others, however, is only an expression of frustrated desire and does not correspond to the calming of desire intended by the exercise. So the, the that being that um, you, we're doing these reflections not to create aversion or, or hatred towards the body, but rather just to 
bring about a, an equanimity, a, a cooling of attachment and identification. The discourses describe a rather drastic case of excessive and unwise use of this particular meditation practice. After the Buddha had instructed a group of monks in this practice and then retired into solitude, so the Buddha had given lots of uh, uh, advice and instruction, encouragement about uh, reflecting on the, the um, unattractive nature of the body, then went off to, to live in solitude by himself for, for a little while. And then when he came back into the community, he said, Ananda, why is the, why is the number of monks so diminished? <laughs> One of those marvelous Pali understatements, like... Sangha seems to be thinned out a little bit, Ananda, where's, where, where, where have all the monks gone? And Ananda has to tell him, well, a lot of them committed suicide. The monks engaged with such fervor in contemplating the anatomical constitution of their own bodies that they felt thoroughly ashamed and disgusted by it. In the end, a substantial number of them committed suicide. And so that's also the, um, it's mentioned in the, um, uh, the third of the, the the defeat rules, the most serious rules for for the uh, the monks and the nuns, the the about taking a human life. Because some of the, the there was a, one of the uh, of the monks who um, uh, <coughs> who uh, was in the in the description of the rule, he's described as the sham recluse or sh- or a, sh- uh, a fake monk. Um, who uh, said, "Oh, you want?" He offered to help them out if they were feeling a little. They were. They wanted to commit suicide, but they were a little bit uh, uncertain uh, or, or a bit unsure of themselves. He said, "Well, I'll help out. Then I'll, I'll finish you off if you like." So that um, uh, that particular individual was thoroughly scolded by the Buddha, and uh, that was the, made the establishment of the of the rule about uh, not deliberately taking the life of a of a human being. As one of the what they call defeat rules and foremost serious rules for a for a monk. That's a pretty extreme incident. That doesn't happen very often. <laughs> but uh, it, in uh, in ordinary uh, everyday life, it's also um, uh, in that the way that we relate to the body um, and and the kind of negative uh, 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 approach to it. Can come out, come out in all sorts of different ways. So um, nowadays, uh, particularly amongst the younger people, uh, the diff- uh, the lot of people experience like a lot of uh, criticism or hatred for their body. They they uh, uh, harm themselves, cutting themselves, or, or uh, uh, difficulties with anorexia, starving oneself. And there's some very interesting um, texts that I read on that um, that. Uh, for people suffering from anorexia, they're kind of starving themselves of, of food, convinced that you you, you need to to stop eating um, because. And, there, and one of the interesting descriptions that I read about it was that it was the main concern wasn't really about what you look like. It was a sense that eating was impure, that, the, that there was a kind of impurity in eating, and not eating was somehow made you pure. And it was a kind of a weirdness of view that uh, that you're. You're getting away from from impurity by uh, avoiding eating, and uh, the perceptions of the the, the body um, being you know, distorted out of out of that particular view. So, 
you might think, oh, lots of people committing suicide because they disgusted with the body. Well, that sounds like, like really extreme or really far out, but it's kind of happening in in uh, in uh, uh, most of the the countries, certainly in the in the Western world, and probably a lot of Asia as well, particularly amongst younger people. That these kind of uh, aspects of of self hatred and, and the harming the body or, or wanting to do away with the body just because of the sense of, of disgust. So that these practices are not about developing hatred or aversion, but rather a, a kind of practical and um, a natural perspective upon the body so that you are able to care for the body, look after the body, um, and sort of um, uh, attend to its needs, but without being entranced or, or, uh, or, uh, or bedazzled, dazzled by the the body. There's an interesting word, uh, the word glamour, which is used for mostly for um, uh, for uh, for women to be sort of dressing the body or arranging the body to be uh, so having a, a powerful, attractive impact on other people. The word glamour comes from, it, from uh, the, the Greek mythology, whereby it was like a spell, like a magical spell that would be cast to make to make you look different. So, like for example. When, um, if you're familiar with the story of of um, Odysseus coming back from the, the Trojan War, when he arrived back on his his island home of Ithaca, then Athene, his protector, so put a glamour on him so that people wouldn't recognize him. So glamour is literally like a kind of coating or a covering, so that things are not seen truly. So then he could move about on the island of Ithaca without being recognized, so that. Uh, that sense of of, uh, of, uh, of what we're trying to do here is see through the glamour, <laughs> the the uh, the kind of um, veneer that our perceptions make of our own bodies or others' body, but to uh, others' bodies, but just to see them as they actually are. So it's a it has a kind of a cooling and and leveling, uh, a sort of clarifying of perception, rather than to to generate any kind of negativity. The need for a balanced attitude is exemplified by the simile in this part of the Satipatthana Sutta, which some of you might remember from three weeks ago, four weeks ago, which compares the contemplation of the anatomical parts to examining a bag full of grains and beans. So here is a hill rice, red rice, black rice, white rice. Here are mung beans, aduki beans, uh, kidney beans, uh, the, just recognizing that you know the uh, and discriminating between the different grains and beans in this big sack just as examining these grains and beans will quite probably not stimulate any effective reaction that's a kind of uh, uh, academic way of saying wow look at that kidney bean that's <laughs> none of us are going to get too ramped up about the shape of a, a grain of rice or a, uh, a bean i would imagine that's a very, very strange fixation. But as he puts it, uh, it's probably not stimulate any affective reaction. So, contemplating the anatomical constitution of the body should be carried out with a balanced and detached attitude so that the effect is to cool desire, not to stimulate aversion. So, I think that's a very, one of the very, very good similes that the, the Buddha uses, that just as you wouldn't get excited or, or really off-put by um, 
whether it, you know rice or grains or beans of different kinds. So looking at our, our body and the internal parts, the external parts, and the, you know, the textures of it, the smell of it, you can relate to it in the same kind of cool and practical way. If sufficient precautions are taken to establish the appropriate attitude, a wise and balanced contemplation of the unattractiveness of the body has the potential to lead to realization. This is documented in the Teri again that's the verses of the enlightened nuns, which reports two nuns gaining full awakening, arahantship, by contemplating the anatomical constitution of their own bodies. And th those were uh, Sundarinanda and also uh, an, uh, Abhayamata were the two Teris who became arahants through that practice. Several discourses categorize the whole set of 31 anatomical parts listed in the Satipatthana Sutta under the elements earth and water in the context of a general exposition of the four elements. This indicates that the next exercise in the Satipatthana Sutta, where the body is analyzed into its four elementary qualities, constitutes a related type of contemplation. The instructions for this contemplation are He reviews this same body, however it is placed, however disposed, as consisting of elements thus. In this body there are the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. The ancient Indian scheme of four elements, mentioned here, represents four basic qualities of matter. Solidity, liquidity or cohesion, temperature, and motion or vibration. So uh, most of us would probably think when we, uh, when we have the elements, we think of like uh, oxygen or iron or carbon or phosphorus and, or think of the, the periodic table and saying there's more than four elements, there's, there's 100 and, 116 now I think. And um, uh, But what this is talking about is not elements as we use the word in, in English, but rather uh, elements as in the primary sort of, uh, or the, the the, um, the particular qualities that all matter possesses, so that there's some kind of crystal structure, some kind of form, uh, that all matter has some kind of liquidity or fluid properties, uh, all matter has some kind of temperature, uh, uh, somewhere of absolute zero or above, and some degree of vibration. So these are like four properties that all matter possesses. To some greater or lesser degree, uh, and so that it's like uh, the, the the four um, say attributes that, uh, of all material form. So it's uh, using the word element in a slightly different way. Since contemplation of the thirty-one anatomical parts has covered mainly the first two of these qualities, the earth element and the water element, liquid element, solidity and liquidity. The four-element analysis entails a more comprehensive approach, extending awareness to aspects of the body that manifest the qualities of temperature and motion as well. Thus, the present exercise further develops the analysis of the body on a more comprehensive and refined level. Contemplation of the body's earthy and watery qualities can be undertaken by observing the physical sensations of the solid and liquid parts of the body. 
So like feeling the, the bones or the saliva in your mouth, and such like. Awareness of its fiery quality can be developed through noting variations in bodily temperature. And to some extent, also by turning awareness to the processes of digestion and aging, which are also considered part of the fire element. Air, representing the quality of motion, or, or vibration also, can be covered by direct, directing awareness to the different movements that take place within the organism, such as the circulation of the blood or the cycle of the breaths. The same elementary qualities can be combined in a single contemplation by being aware of these four qualities as characteristics of each part or particle of the body. So that's what I was saying, that the, say that your, your bones have a, a solid quality, they also have a, a temperature, they have a, a liquid uh, quality, and, and also there's a quality of vibration, even if it's just on a subatomic level. The corresponding simile illustrates the effect of this particular method of contemplation with a butcher who has slaughtered and cut up a cow to sell. According to the commentaries, the butcher simile indicates a change of cognition, sanya, since after slaughter, the butcher no longer thinks in terms of cow, but only in terms of meat. A similar shift of cognition takes place when a meditator dissects the body into its elementary qualities. The body is no longer experienced as I or mine, but simply as a combination of these four qualities. So, uh, in, in this is a, a, a good example um, since uh, we, uh, like, say, with with, uh, with a, an animal, where like we, uh, like a a, um, a cow, you, know, you don't say I'm eating I'm eating cow or it's a cow burger. Maybe you do. <laughs> you say well, no, you, you say uh, you, you use the uh, a different word to refer to when it's turned into food. Um, so you, you say beef, or, or like uh, or with a pig, you don't say I'm eating pig. You say I'm eating ham or pork or bacon, such like. Uh, so that there's a, a shift of perception. So similarly, that relate uh, changing the relationship. Or this rather than this is my 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 bones or my um, my skin. Or this is the earth element or our breath. Or that's the wind element or the the feeling the the saliva in our mouth or or a runny nose. Or that's the water element. To experience oneself as a combination of material qualities reveals the qualitative identity of one's own body with the external environment. So what that means, and the, the, often the, the reflection when this is described in, in the suttas, it's like, it says, uh, earth element inside, earth element outside, it's all just earth element. So like, okay, the, I could say, this is my hand, I can feel my skin and my bones, but the, the earth element of this chair and the earth element of my bones, it's just earth element. So that's what uh, the, that sentence is, is meaning, is that it's, uh, you're, 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 in a way, looking at that unifying or that um, uh, uh, equality, uh, the, uh, uh, a sense of, of uh, unification with the, what we think of as the external world. Like this building, this is just you know, earth element, air element, heat element, uh, water element. So is this body. It's just inside, water element inside, water element outside. It's all just water element or air element so, so that it's uh, in a sense uh, directed in the same way against uh, 
the self-view or the, the feeling of alienation or separateness so that I am separate from the, the world outside so this is a way of, of, of changing that and sort of shifting that view in this way a healthy degree of detachment develops counteracting the grasping at what is in the end merely a combination of material qualities with sustained contemplation, a meditator may come to realize that this apparently so solid and compact material body, and with it the whole material world, is entirely without essence. There are simply different degrees of hardness or softness, wetness or dryness, of hotness or coldness, and some degree of motion, at least on the subatomic level. Contemplation of the four elements has thus the potential to lead to a penetrative realization of the insubstantial and selfless nature of material reality. The discourses relate the scheme of the four elements not only to the human body, but also to material existence in general. The Mahahatipadoma Sutta, that's the discourse on the elephant's footprint, takes up the similarity between one's own internal four elements and their external counterparts in order to bring home the truth of impermanence. The argument is that, since, according to ancient Indian cosmology, at some point in time the whole planet will meet with destruction, what permanence could there be in this insignificant accumulation of the same elements called body? Appreciating the impermanent nature of all material phenomena in this way serves to counteract the search for material pleasure. Relinquishing desire through disenchantment with material phenomena will then lead to freedom from the bondage caused by the four elements. An additional perspective on the four elements can be found in the Maha Rahul Ovada Sutta. That's the greater discourse on advice to Rahula, the Buddha's son. And that's Sutta number 62 in the middle length discourses. Which very, there's lots of very good meditation advice in there. And it uses the four elements as an inspiration for developing the mental qualities of loving kindness, metta, and compassion, karuna. And he's, he uh, summarizes it a bit here. Just as the earth is free from resentment, even when various types of refuse are thrown on it, so too a meditator should develop a mind free from resentment. Keeping the mind free from resentment in this way, one will be able to retract to sorry, one will be able to react with loving kindness and compassion, even in adverse circumstances. And so this is the uh, uh, the Buddha's uh, say conversation with his son Rahula, and he says, uh, Rahula, be like the earth. Uh, uh, meditate on being like the earth because just as the earth whatever you, th you throw into it whether it's something that's beautiful or ugly pure or impure uh, it just lands on the earth and the earth is not disgusted or appalled or upset um, so too you know, if you're like that when people say harsh things to you or you experience uncomfortable feelings then in the same way, same way you won't be disgusted or upset or, or, or uh, sort of react in a negative way and so he said with the same like with water, whatever you throw into the water, the water just uh, uh, takes it in, whether it's beautiful or ugly or pure or impure, the, the water just receives it. With fire, uh, with the air, whatever, um, 
the the elements are are say infinitely patient and and uh, accepting of whatever lands in them. Of course, um, you can say, well, what about pollution, Ajahn? It's, it's not uh, you know there's uh, these are they're serious issues, and you know this is the uh, which of course they are serious issues, but this is uh, using a metaphor. Uh, all all metaphors, all analogies are partially accurate. They're never a hundred percent, but in this respect, he's just saying um, that the, uh, the there's this kind of perfect equanimity, perfect ease with which the the four elements are completely impartial to whatever happens to them, and saying that kind of impartiality, that unbiased, uh, un, uh, non-reactive quality of mind. And then the last one he says is, uh, Rahula, be like space. It's because space you know, <coughs> receives any object that is, is put into it. And, you know, space never says, no, I'm not going to make room for you. You know, Whatever uh, arrives in a, in a space, the space uh, it makes makes room for it. That uh, uh, it says, Rahula, be like space. So because uh, you know, the, uh, you know, space doesn't provide a footing, doesn't provide a, a, a foothold or a ground for any, anything negative to land in it or to, to, to take hold or to, to stick to it, so too in your mind is like space, then it doesn't give an abiding, it doesn't give a landing place for anything uh, in the mind to, to stick to, to adhere to. So these passages show that contemplation of the four elements can be employed in a variety of ways, linking the nature of one's body to the constitution of the whole material environment or employing these material characteristics in order to develop wholesome mental attitudes. So any other, any particular questions, comments, reflections? Yes, HK. Does Buddhism have have something to do with medicine? Because I kind of knew that Buddhism has something to do with cosmology or physics, but it's kind of very new to me to realize that it has a lot of things to do with medicine. In the um, in the northern Buddhist world, very much so. So uh, in Tibet, um, uh, they have a very very thoroughly worked out, um, say, system of the the elements of the body and the, the structure of the body, the energies of the body, and uh, their whole medical system is thoroughly woven into Buddhist principles and also the, the uh, I think they have the five elements. They have wood as well as the fifth element. And um, and then into China as well, so that that uh, that's very much a part of the the sort of approach to to medicine. I I believe there's also quite a lot of the uh, sort of Ayurvedic and Brahminical tradition woven in there as well. So it's got a mixture of those elements, but very much from the Indian tradition. It, I, I don't know about the southern Buddhist world. There's nothing really explicit in the in the suttas or in the teachings. What you have sort of grown up in, um, in, say, countries like Thailand, Sri Lanka, they have their own particular ways of approaching medicine and treatment. But I don't think it's anything like as worked out as you have in, in Tibet and, uh, and China. And uh, I think in the, in the library here we have a few books on Tibetan medicine uh, and they have these extraordinary sort of colourful charts and amazing sort of diagrams of how all these different 
aspects of the body work together and how the different elements are sort of in balance or out of balance and and I was treated by a Tibetan doctor um, for about two years or so when I was living in the States and um, it's a, a completely different way of approaching um, medical treatment <coughs> and and but uh, very much and the mind is is seen as a extremely important in how medicine is dealt with but in the southern buddhist world it's not really uh, approached very much at all and uh, it's, it's certainly not there in any kind of specific way there's a few things where the buddha says uh, eating rice gruel and the you know there's like 10 advantages for eating <coughs> eating rice uh, rice gruel yagu in the in the morning and uh, so that uh, he says you know it, it helps to do this this and this and that. And so there's a few little medical tips like that, but nothing like a thoroughly worked out system. It sounds like a very surgical, like a, this kind of a approach to this the content of this sutta. It sounds like very surgical, like, like dissecting. Well, it's very much based on on the attitude. It's like trying to change the attitude from I am my body. If my body is healthy and attractive, that's good. If my body is unhealthy or unattractive, uncomfortable, that's bad. Uh, I want my body to be comfortable and to live forever. I want all the bits to work uh, uh, and to, to look as I would wish all the time. And say, if that's the way you think, you're creating suffering. So it's it's all geared at the, the attitude and not... Uh, uh, particularly about the um, sort of maintenance of, uh, of health and so on. When it talks about uh, the teachings that talk about eating and and diet and such like, then it's really focuses on um, e uh, treating food as uh, medicine for the body that just to, to sustain the life, to help feelings of hunger to to end and to not create uh, give rise to feelings of being overfull or stuffed or giving rise to illnesses on account of what you eat. But it's not a lot more specific than that, in, in my knowledge. Um, and uh, you, uh, there's a, having said that, there is a really interesting little sutta where, the, where King Pasenadi comes to see the Buddha and, and he's described as arriving, sort of huffing and puffing and being out of breath. And the Buddha puts him on a diet. Says, you're, you're a great king, you know. <laughs> Why are you coming here in the middle of the day, huffing and puffing like this, out of breath? And then he says, "You know, you should uh, be wise for you, great king, if you, you know, reduce the amount of food that you're eating because uh, it's not going to do you much good if you carry on in this way." So you do get a little bit of dietary advice. Not, it's not much, but here you know, there's one or two instances like that. The uh, if you're interested in the four elements. This is shameless self-promotion. <laughs> so this particular book, What I Wrote, um, brings together the Satipatthana Sutta and the Four Elements. And so it came about because uh, it was in the States, there was this big oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. And um, it was a uh, big uh, concern about the amount of pollution that was being um caused in that area and the number of animals and the, the being harmed and, the, and fishes and the, 
um, destruction to the habitat and such like. And so uh, the local yoga center where we would teach regularly near Abhayagiri Monastery, they would ask me to do um, little courses once or twice a year. And so they asked if I could do something on on uh, this uh, environmental issues. So I, I was contemplating how to approach that. And so I came up with, well, as... Um, uh, Two, two fundamental issues of, well, what is the world and how do we uh, relate to the world to, uh, to bring about the most benefit for ourselves and others. And so then uh, reflecting on those, those issues, well, what do we, how do we think of as the world? And then the material world, I thought, well, that's, you could talk around the four elements, but then what to do about it or how to relate to it, it relates to the four Satipatthanas, Satipatthana Sutta. So then I thought, well, maybe you could put the two together. And I'd never heard of that being done before. And I thought, well, let's just see if they line up, if you can join up the, the dots. And uh, so what I ended up doing, and then also I like to play with ideas and take different approaches to things. So uh, I took the, the four elements uh, as a sort of a contemplation of the material world and, and our bodies and the, our, our life in the material dimension. And uh, brought it together with the four Satipatthanas, so that the Kayanupasana contemplation of the body, uh, I brought together with the earth element, and then feeling Vedana um, together with the water element, and then Chitanupasana contemplation of the of mind states and moods, together with the fire element, like the, we have in the. Um, uh, the fire sermon is the contemplation of, of the six senses and the um, uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. Uh, raga, dosa, moha, that happens around the six senses. And then the dhammanupasana, which is a contemplation of, of dhammas, which is mostly around uh, change and arising and ceasing. I thought that was a good uh, a partner for the air element, which is about vibration and, and oscillation. So I thought... Uh, <coughs> Well, maybe you could maybe you could line them up. It was, even if they don't fit perfectly, it might be just an interesting way of approaching both the Satipatthana and the, the four elements. So, so anyway, this this little book is a a um, uh, the product of that series of four uh, sessions I did at the at the center. It also has short versions of the Satipatthana Sutta and the um, uh, the Anapanasati Sutta in the back. That uh, I sort of abbreviated and adapted so it made it more sort of readable and trimmed down. And um, the last thing that's in here is uh, uh, a collection of notes about eco anxiety and eco psychology um, and what to do with the mind's tendency to worry about the, um, uh, the environment and the e uh, economic, uh, ecological degradation and. Uh, and such like, uh, which had been part of a monastic conference that we that we had. So, if you are um, interested, particularly in um, reflections on the four elements and also their relationship to Satipatthana, available in a lobby very close to you. Help yourself to copies. But don't, I will not feel offended if you don't want to read it or you think it's filled with wrong views. But uh, it's uh, it was interesting to do, you know, uh, just to sort of experiment and to put the ideas together and to see how they. Uh, they relate to each other. And also just uh, the four elements can seem a bit sort of technical or a bit remote or a bit sort of 
well, I can't really get a feel for that, or, or it seems a, a, a bit uh, other, other-ish, if such a word exists. Uh, uh, the, the mind can sort of look at that as, uh, in a, as an object or something that's very external. So I wanted to, to, to try and find ways to uh, bring that contemplation of the four elements a bit more alive and a bit more tangible and, and to help, say, pick that up and, and to, to use that in a more active and interactive way. Just in case you weren't aware that this book exists. Arjun, um, yes. As we come to physical appearance in Buddhism, um, my hero was Badia the Dwarf. Um, Badia the Dwarf? Yeah, there's a suitor on Badia the Dwarf, and Badia the Dwarf is. And it might be linked to Amra Vakar, I don't know. Sometimes dwarfs were around a stupa, and someone went into an anchor. I don't know if it's the deal, I haven't confirmed that, but there's a suit on his appearance and he's seen, he's really quite radical the way they describe him because he's um, sort of twisted and has terrible conditions. And the monks pull his ears and rub his skin, it must have set him up sort of thing. And there was a lot of, how can this person be a follower of the Buddha, you know, because he's described as very unpleasant. There's very terrible descriptions of him. And the Buddha calls the Sangha together and says, Mahavadogs, he's gone further than all of you. And apparently he's one of the great followers of the Buddha, one of the, the little Sri Lankan, I don't know what to call him small, but the small Sri Lankan monk was talking about him last night, yeah. asking, asking the questions. And uh, you know, the suit is very good at describing the fact that everybody looked at him and thought, well, how can that person progress and he became an Arahant, you know? Well, those are, are um, though they wouldn't be representing him. They they are um, what are called kumbandas. It's a particular kind of um, earth deva. So if you're, if you're familiar with, um, like in, in uh, Greek architecture, the sort of the, the, uh, um, what they call caryatids, often at the bottom of a pillar, the kind of muscular um, sort of uh, uh, Greek davers <laughs> that are sort of holding up pillars or holding up, uh, holding up beams. And it's the, the, the sort of Indian version of those within their architecture uh, so kumbanda literally means is a pot belly, so they're kind of the pot-bellied gnomes. The kumbandas is a particular class of of earth deva, buma deva, and um, so they've woven their way into the um, uh, sort of classical Indian architecture. Also, actually, as as it happens, Ajahn Vimalo has got a few that he's making at the moment. Yeah. That, uh, that sutra, I think, is the kumbanda Adiya sutra. It's access to inside dwarfs. <laughs> okay, but a uh, kumbanda um, uh, uh, is a is a particular class of of, uh, of deva. But um, so they have that kind of a of a, a role in the architecture. But they wouldn't be representing him in particular. It's also interesting that um, 
one of the leading uh, women disciples of the Buddha was uh, called Kujutara. And she's the only lay person that has a whole collection of teachings. There's a few lay people that gave suttas, that the suttas are given by them, like Chitta uh, as a householder. But uh, Kujutara is the only lay person that has a whole um, book of teachings um, that, uh, that she gave. And she was a, a, a hunchback and a slave. And so she was like absolutely the bottom of the heap in, so in terms of the social order. So she was, uh, but she was um, praised by the Buddha as the, the woman disciple who was um, most uh, knowledgeable about the teachings. And so she was, uh, just like um, Badia, the, the dwarf, was, was very publicly praised. Uh, and so there's a few people that um, are named as uh, sort of. Uh, as the sort of supreme in various functions, like Visaka was the lay disciple who was most generous, woman lay disciple was most generous, or, or um, you had uh, <coughs> Sariputta was the, the monk who had the greatest wisdom, uh, or Sister Kema was the nun who had the greatest wisdom, and so on. So uh, Kujutara was the, the lay woman who had the, the greatest uh, knowledge of the teachings, and yet socially she was like way, way down the heap. So, She's uh, one of my particular heroes, heroines. <laughs> she was uh, the reason why she uh, she got so um, kind of famous is because the king Udena had a very ambivalent relationship to the Buddha. He was sometimes he kind of went hot and cold. So sometimes he was a, an ardent devotee, and other times he was very irritated and, and uh, off put. And so um, his queen, uh, Samavati, uh, was a very devoted disciple of the Buddha. And, uh, and then he, but then at a certain point, Udena got upset with, with, uh, with the Buddha and upset with, with Queen Samavati's devotion to him. So he banned the queen and all of her retinue, all the kind of court ladies um, and the rest of his harem from going to, to see the Buddha. So he, he said, no, you can't, you can't go and listen to his teachings. And, you know, wouldn't let them out of the, of the palace, wouldn't let them go to the, to the monastery, the Gosita Rama. But because Kujutra was a slave, she didn't count. She was kind of under the radar. So Kujutra is quite okay, because she's, she's nobody. So, but she also had an incredibly retentive memory. So she would go and listen to the Dhamma talks, and then she'd memorize what the Buddha said, and then she'd bring it back to the, to the harem, and then give the teachings to to Samavati and, the, and her whole crew of the, the court women. And so then that uh, that collection of teachings, that's the, the Itivutaka, the, that collection. Because uh, each of the, the suttas uh, that she recounted begins with the words, thus it was said, Itivutaka, it was said this way. Iti means this, Vutaka means it was said. So that uh, the whole book, uh, the Itivutaka, is what Kujutra kind of relayed back to the to uh, Samavati and, and the court because the, the, the Buddha, because uh, King Udena was in a huff. So then, uh, so she uh, she had a a kind of job. It was her duty to go, <laughs> but uh, she was uh, uh, so she was really really blessed. That uh, that was her kind of responsibility to go and listen to the teachings and bring them back and so. And she had a, a great, uh, uh, very sharp analytical mind, so she could remember what was said and recounted accurately. And, uh, and the Buddha approved of all that uh, she said. It was uh, he he uh, 
say, um, uh, <coughs> when he was asked, is she remembering this accurately? And said, yes, <laughs> that's what I said. So that uh, so it's unique in, in the whole canon. So the whole book of teachings given by her. Okay, I think that's enough for today. <laughs>